Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right. We're well, again, good to see you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. Um, a while back, we were at a soccer practice for our five-year-old son, Wit. Um, and while I was there, I became privy to a, uh, shall we say, a heated conversation between two of the other parents that were there at the game. It was a husband and wife. They had gotten there. The, the husband had just showed up, I think, from work uh, to watch the practice. Um, and they started talking, and I could quickly tell uh, that the husband was kind of frustrated at his wife. Um, from what I gathered from the conversation, uh, his wife had allowed their five-year-old, who was also on the team, to eat uh, corn dogs and fries prior to that practice. And the husband was not very happy about that decision that his wife had made about what they should eat. Um, I could tell that from his tone and the everything about how he was talking to his wife, that he was not very happy about that. Uh, he felt like having a corn dog and fries prior to practice would diminish his five-year-old son's stellar performance at this particular soccer practice where they mostly just run in circles and don't even pay attention to the soccer ball at all. Uh, he just felt like that diminished uh, his son's performance because, you know, I mean, at this type of practice, there's obviously scouts there, you know, looking for pro potential. And so he starts to kind of fuss at his wife about this decision that she had made. And this guy said to his wife at one point in the conversation, I kid you not, this is an exact quote, I guess that's just one more area of our life that I'm going to have to take over because nobody can do anything right. And I just like took cover, right? Like I'm just like, I didn't know what was about to happen after that comment. But uh, I, I don't know if this is just how he normally talked to his wife or what. She kind of took it in stride. They kept talking. He kept complaining about it. And, and this went on for probably three to five minutes. Uh, and at one point, as he was still complaining, while I was honestly wrestling about whether or not I should say something, like whether I should speak up, the most glorious thing happened. Uh, a wasp, as if from God above, started making its way towards this husband who was complaining. It, it started in, in really large circles around him, like just gradually, you know. And at first, he tried to pretend like he didn't see it. You know how guys do sometimes? Like tried to pretend like he wasn't nervous. I mean, and this, by, the, by the way, this wasp could have won awards. I mean, it was huge. And so this wasp is circling him. He's trying to pretend like he doesn't see it. And eventually it gets so close and so constant around him that he can't ignore it anymore. And so it gets closer and closer. And then it, in what, again, I can only imagine was a gift from the heavens, this wasp lands directly on this guy's forehead and stings him right between the eyebrows. And then 
this man who evidently is better than everybody else in his family screamed like a small child. It was glorious. It was the best thing I've ever seen. It was as if all that was wrong in the world could be righted, you know? That was the thought going through my head. Okay, I made up the part about the wasp, but the rest of it was true. I think the wasp was more like my daydreaming about what I wished would have happened in that moment. I mean, you're watching a five-year-old soccer practice. You've got to occupy yourself somehow. I was imagining this whole scenario. But my question is, have you ever met someone who is kind of like that dad at the soccer practice? Somebody who's hypercritical, always finding fault with what other people do, always thinks they could have done it better, always thinks that, that somehow the other people just can't live up to their standards. I've met a person like that, and it's me. I'm an Enneagram One, for those of you that do the Enneagram thing, I'm a perfectionist. It's technically called a reformer, but reformer is just a nice way to say perfectionist. I always see what could be better. And sometimes what that leads me to do is criticize everything that I think is not as good as it can be. But you don't have to be an Enneagram One to be like that. Plenty of people are like that. Have you ever met somebody with that sort of tendency? I think that posture, that sort of disposition towards other people is very similar to what we find in a group of people in the scriptures, and in Matthew specifically, called the Pharisees. That's sort of their MO. That's how they operate. That's how they interact with other people is that they're always ready to find fault, always ready to accuse somebody of something, always thinks that there's something that could be done better than what is happening in front of them. And today, we're going to get to take a look in depth at the Pharisees. So we've come across them a few times already in our study through Matthew. We've, we've seen the Pharisees and sort of how they interact with people. But today is maybe the first time that we're going to get a look at them in depth. We're going to see just who the Pharisees are precisely. So with that real-life soccer game scenario in mind... I want us to work through this passage together. Take a look with me. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Let's see what it says. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Verse 2, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So where we pick up the story, Jesus and his disciples are traveling through some grain fields. As they do, the disciples start to pluck off heads of grain around them in the field and eat them. Now, to us, that might make it sound like this is just them sort of casually snacking, right? I don't know about you, I've found in my life, I do a good bit of eating when I'm not actually hungry at all, I'm just bored. Have you ever found that to be the case with you? So sometimes it's like, I ate 30 minutes ago, I'm not hungry, but I'm not doing anything else, and so I start eating. So just so we're clear, that is not what the disciples are doing here. They're not casually snacking on the grain around them out of boredom. The passage actually says they were, quote, hungry. Now that word in the Greek means to desire eagerly or maybe to suffer want. Sometimes in the New Testament, it's actually translated as being needy. 
So keep in mind, these disciples of Jesus were, were poor. They had next to nothing to their name. Even those that had a good bit prior to following Jesus had given much of that away in following Jesus. And on top of that, we actually read a few different times during the Gospels that the disciples' sort of day-to-day ministry was so demanding at times that it prevented them even slowing down for a second to eat a meal. So when it says that these disciples were hungry and plucking heads of grain to eat them, it doesn't mean that they were bored and snacking. It means they likely had skipped a meal or two, didn't know when the next time they would eat would be, and so they were in dire need of sustenance. They were needy at the time. So they began to eat this grain from the field. Now, the Pharisees, who are apparently nearby, it doesn't say why the Pharisees are nearby. They, I guess they just hang out in grain fields waiting for somebody to do something like this. They were there. They see this happening. They take notice of it. They are not happy about it at all. They are offended, even outraged, at what the disciples are being permitted to do because it is the Sabbath day. Now, if you're newer to the Bible, The Sabbath was a day of rest, essentially. Once every seven days, God's people were to take the day off for rest and reprieve and replenishment and worship. All things considered, the Sabbath was actually a relatively simple command for God's people to abide by. It was just take a day off from work once every seven days. But you see, what God had made very simple about the Sabbath, the Pharisees had turned into something very complicated. The Pharisees had put together a list of 39 types of activities that they considered to be work and therefore were prohibited on the Sabbath. Some of them made a lot of sense. So you weren't allowed to hunt. You weren't allowed to fish because back then those weren't hobbies that you did in your spare time. They were ways of providing for your family. And so those were prohibited on the Sabbath because that would be doing work. Some of them made a lot of sense. But some of them were kind of ridiculous. Uh, For instance, you weren't allowed to write more than one letter from the alphabet on the Sabbath because that would be considered work. You weren't allowed to sew more than one stitch on a garment because that would be considered work. One of the more ridiculous ones to me was that on the Sabbath, you couldn't put out a fire, even if the fire threatened to destroy property. So if your house started catching on fire on the Sabbath, too bad, you should have had your house catch on fire a different day of the week. There's just nothing you could do about it. So some of them were these bizarre, like cumbersome, burdensome commands that they had put around the Sabbath because they thought it would help clarify what God intended for people to do and not do on that day. So notice the Sabbath was originally intended to benefit God's people. It was a day to pause and reflect and be refreshed in your spirit for the week ahead, a day to remember that you are more than what you can accomplish. The Sabbath was meant as a gift from God to humanity for their good, but what God, has, what God had meant as a gift, the Pharisees had turned into a burden. They had taken what was supposed to be the most liberating, the most refreshing day of the week, and they had turned it into a day that was just as burdensome as all the other days, if not more so. They had turned the Sabbath into the exact opposite of what God intended that day to be. Do you see that in the passage? And that essentially is what Jesus is about to tell the Pharisees in his response, but he's going to do it in his own way. So take a look with me back in verse 3 of our passage. 
Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet they are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So, to answer the Pharisees' accusation against his disciples, Jesus references three different places from the Old Testament scriptures of their day. And these passages you and I may not be very familiar with, but the Pharisees would have been very familiar with them. The first one is from the life of David. So at one point, uh, David was on the run. He was being pursued by King Saul. King Saul was trying to chase him down to kill him because he was threatened by him. And while David is on the run, he takes refuge in the temple. And while he's there, he and his men with him are hungry, and so they are permitted to eat from the consecrated bread. Essentially, it was just show bread that was there in the temple that no one was permitted to eat except for the priest. David wasn't a priest, but he ate it, and he wasn't condemned for it. The second story Jesus mentions is that technically the priests who serve in the temple on the Sabbath are always violating the Sabbath. They work on the Sabbath every single week, and yet they are not condemned for doing so because they're helping God's people offer sacrifices to God. So they're not condemned for working on the Sabbath. They're actually instructed to do that. And then last, sort of to sum up, to help these Pharisees kind of see where they're off, Jesus quotes from a passage in Hosea 6. We've already referenced this one once in the Gospel of Matthew, but it says essentially that God desires from his people mercy, not sacrifice. What God is after from his people is mercy, not sacrifice. And that really sums up everything that Jesus has said so far. He's trying to show the Pharisees that the point of God's commands is not just to abstain from things for the sake of abstaining from them, but rather God's commands are about God showing mercy to his people and trying to get his people to operate in mercy towards others. And because the Pharisees don't understand that about the law, about the Old Testament scriptures, that means as a result they have missed the entire point of the law. And they have condemned people that aren't actually guilty. In the next story, the Pharisees are about to put on full display just how badly they have missed the point. So let's take a look back in verse 9 of chapter 12. Going on from that place, Jesus went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So this time they're in the synagogue, there's a man there with some sort of disability in one of his hands. The Pharisees, who Matthew tells us at this point, were looking for things to accuse Jesus of. That's important, we're going to circle back to that. They see this man, they hold him up in front of Jesus, and they ask Jesus if it is lawful to heal a man like this on the Sabbath. Now, just for a second, imagine how far off the Pharisees would have had to get in order to say this. 
Imagine being in front of a man in need, a man with a lifelong disability, and rather than looking for ways to help him or heal him or pray for him or show compassion towards him, imagine thinking that the most pressing thing for you to do is to use him as a prop in a theological argument. How far were they from the heart of God to think that that was what they needed to do in that moment? I think that shows us a little bit about how off they had gotten, but that's what they do. Take a look at Jesus' response to them, verse 11. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Okay then, verse 12, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. So in the first story we read, Jesus used scripture to confront the Pharisees' thinking. This time he just uses logic. He says, if any of you have a sheep, an animal, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, are you seriously just going to wait until the next day to help it out? Are you just going to sit there and let it be exposed to the conditions, or are you going to rescue your animal out of that situation? You're going to rescue it. Ten times out of ten, that's exactly what you're going to do. Not a chance that you're going to leave that animal there just because it's the Sabbath day. Then Jesus says, okay, so then, you, you Pharisees do know how to show mercy, you just don't know how to show it to people, and especially people who are in need especially people who you don't think deserve that mercy. And then, without so much as a word back from the Pharisees, Jesus turns and he heals the man. And in the story, we don't see any marveling from the Pharisees at this. No rejoicing that a man in need has been healed or cured. All we see in the Pharisees is more outrage, more fury that Jesus would do such a thing and contradict their understanding of the Old Testament law. And this time, their outrage is even more intense. Verse 14 says, at this point in the story, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. This is the first glimpse we get at their plan that would eventually come to full fruition in the cross, where they actually participated in getting Jesus executed by the state. The Pharisees are so outraged that anyone would challenge their orthodoxy, their understanding of what was right and wrong, their interpretation of the law, that they are now ready to murder the one who is creating the challenge. The heart posture of the Pharisees is now on full display. So that is a glimpse into the types of people that the Pharisees often were in Jesus' day. We get a couple glimpses at the fact that not all Pharisees were like this, but certainly a lot of them were. Now, with that said, I think there's an inherent danger for us in reading passages like this as followers of Jesus. Because chances are, when you and I read a story, a passage about the Pharisees in the Bible, we probably picture them in our heads as the stereotypical mean church person, right? And we've got plenty of examples of that out in our world to compare them to, right? To help us form the mental image of who they are. So they are, uh, they're Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, right? They're uh, the church lady from SNL back in the day, if you remember Dana Carvey and that whole skit. 
or they're, they're the real life street preacher on Market Square, yelling through a bullhorn about how everybody's going to hell except for them, apparently, right? That's the picture I think a lot of us have when we read through the scriptures of who the Pharisees were and, and what they were like and what their personality was like. The Pharisees to us tend to read as sort of the religious, dogmatic, buttoned-down people of Jesus' day. And once we picture them in that particular way, I think then a lot of us go, wow, I am so glad that I don't follow Jesus like that. I am so glad that I don't treat people like that. I'm so glad that I would never be guilty of those things. And you see, just as soon as we've thought that, we have actually become Pharisees ourselves. I mean, Jesus literally tells a story in Luke chapter 18 where the thing that he condemns a Pharisee for doing is looking at other types of people and going, I thank God that I'm not like that. That's the exact thing that they get condemned for. So whenever you feel that attitude rise up in you, whenever I feel that attitude rise up in me where we say, I would never be like those people, all the red lights on your dashboard should be going off because that means you are rapidly approaching Pharisee territory. So ironically, my posture towards that other dad at the soccer game was pharisaical in its own right. Because I was thinking in my head, I would never be like that. And I pray that I wouldn't be like that. But by taking that posture, by assuming that I could never be guilty of something like that, what I had actually done is created a Pharisee dynamic in myself towards him. To the point that I was having anger fantasies about him being stung by a wasp. Like that's how bad it had gotten. Maybe I wasn't planning to murder him like the Pharisees were in the passage, but I was, I was fantasizing about him getting hurt. That was an appealing scenario for me to consider in my mind. And though it may seem different, that is the heart of a Pharisee just the same. That's the posture of a Pharisee just the same. You see, if I could just be completely transparent with you guys, as a pastor of this community, I am not all that concerned that our church will attract the traditional type of Pharisee. I'm not concerned that we have a ton of people in our church like driving around town waiting to see who's pulling weeds at their house on the Sabbath, taking a picture and going, gotcha. I, I don't know that that's our crowd, right? I, I don't know that we've got people like camped out outside local bars and are watching for somebody in our church to take a sip of beer and going, I got you. Like, I, I don't think that's exactly our crowd here at City Church. The traditional types of Pharisees tend to get really frustrated around our church really quickly, and they tend to leave rather quickly. What I'm more concerned about for our community is that we would, we would attract a, a new type of Pharisee. The new Pharisee gets their righteousness not from thinking that they're better than sinful people, but by thinking they're better than religious people. They're Pharisees about Pharisees. They don't go around thinking, I'm so much better than everybody. They go around thinking, wow, I'm so much better than the people that think they're better than everybody else. Do you see how tricky that is? That's my concern for our community. You see, the tendency in every single one of us is to cling so tightly to our own version of what is right and what is wrong, our own version of orthodoxy, and then condemn, judge, and write off anyone who doesn't live up to that. That's the tendency in all of us, and that's precisely what the Pharisees were doing. 
So rather than assume that we already know the types of people in our world that are Pharisees and assuming that we're not them, we might be better off if we examined each of us, if we examined ourselves for signs of a Pharisee's heart. Rather than saying, wow, I'm so much better than Pharisees, maybe we should go to work on that very type of heart posture wherever it might exist in us. So that's what I want to do for the next little bit. We're going to finish out our passage through verse 21 here in just a bit. But before we do that, I want us to do some self-examination. I want us to try to look inward for a second and determine if we might have become new Pharisees, so to speak, if there's ways that we've drifted into a similar heart posture as them. So here are three signs that I just find from combing back over these two stories that we just read, three signs of a Pharisee's heart. You ready? This will be fun. And by fun, I mean convicting for all of us. So here we go. First sign of a Pharisee heart, conflating conflating. Look with me at verse 2 in chapter 12. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, there was actually nowhere in the Old Testament law that said plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath was unlawful. You won't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. What the Pharisees meant when they said this was that the disciples were doing what the Pharisees had concluded was unlawful on the Sabbath. They weren't violating the Old Testament law. They were violating the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. But the Pharisees can't see the difference between those two things. The Pharisees can't see the difference between what scriptures teach and what they assume scripture means. In their head, they've conflated those two things into one. They're treating those two things like they are the same thing. And we do this too sometimes, even if we don't realize that we're doing it. For example, if you have ever said or thought something like, no Christian should ever blank, you've done this. If you've ever said or thought something like, every Christian should blank, then you've done this. You fill in the blank. So if you say, well, no Christian should ever vote Democrat or vote Republican or support Trump or support Biden. No Christian should ever watch this type of TV show, watch that type of movie, listen to this type of music, wear that type of clothing, support this organization or not support that organization. Or if you've thought to yourself, well, every Christian should support this candidate. Or, or should be married, or should have a date night with their spouse once a week, or should send their kids to private school, or public school, or homeschool, right? If you've ever said to yourself, every Christian should do this, you're guilty of the same type of posture as the Pharisees. Uh, my counselor calls this shooting all over people, which I think is funny, because it sounds like something else you're doing when you do this. And we could literally go on for hours with examples, right? But anytime we start thinking every Christian should blank or no Christian should blank and we haven't taken those beliefs, those convictions directly from the pages of Scripture, we are in danger of doing what the Pharisees did, conflating our interpretation of the Bible with the Bible itself. They're not the same thing. 
Next one that we see in the passage, verse 10, is fault-finding. Fault-finding. Look with me the second half of verse 10. It says, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So the Pharisees here are asking a theological question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But the thing is, it's not actually a question at all. It's an attempt to find fault with Jesus. They are looking for reasons to reject Jesus' authority and Jesus' teaching. They are waiting seemingly around every corner. You remember the grain fields? They are waiting around every corner to catch Jesus or his disciples in a lie or an act or a contradictory statement or a violation of the Old Testament law so that they then have ammunition for their opposition to him. So can I just ask, do you ever do this? Do you find joy in finding fault with other people? Do you decide in advance to not like a particular person and then meticulously look for reasons to confirm that posture towards them? Does part of you rejoice a little bit when you find out that someone has a shortcoming or a struggle or a character flaw of some sort, especially when you don't like that person? Do you find joy in being right at the expense of someone else being wrong? That's the posture of fault-finding, and I would argue the posture of a Pharisee. Lastly, third one we see in the passage is escalating. Escalating. Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. We read in the passage that in response to Jesus' words and actions in the synagogue, The Pharisees are ready to conspire to murder Jesus. I'd say that qualifies as escalation from the scenario that they were in. They didn't just turn around and gossip about him. They didn't subtweet him. They didn't try to get back at him in subtle, passive-aggressive ways. They went out and started plotting how to eliminate him, how to get rid of him. They escalated the situation. And the spirit of a Pharisee, even if it doesn't involve outright murder, is always to escalate. Every offense that you commit against them is an ultimate offense. Every person who frustrates them is assumed to have the worst possible motive. Every sin that they see in somebody else is the worst kind of sin. Every concern that they have with you is a grave concern that must be addressed immediately. Every issue they have needs to be addressed right away or else. Every opinion they have is the right one or the best one. Pharisees have an incredibly difficult time agreeing to disagree on anything. One thing that we try to do whenever someone comes to us with a concern as a staff, whether that's a concern about another person or a concern about City Church in general, is we try to help them put it in one of two categories. So we try to get them to say whether their concern is a preference or a conviction. And those are different. A preference means that there are multiple right ways to go about something. I might prefer to do it this way, you might prefer to do it that way, but those are equally good approaches to it. There's not a right or wrong. A conviction means there is a right and there is a wrong And the other person is doing it wrong, so I need to engage them on it. There's a difference between a preference and a conviction. Now, I say all of that to say that the spirit of a Pharisee is to escalate every preference of theirs to a conviction. They upgrade it, so to speak. 
every concern that they have, even if it's just a difference of opinion, all of a sudden becomes a right or wrong type of scenario. Everything for them is a conviction. Everything gets blown out of proportion. Everything is threat level midnight, to use one of my favorite terms. Everything is my way or the highway. They escalate almost every situation far beyond what it needs to be, far beyond what is helpful. So conflating, fault finding, and escalating. I think those are some postures, some characteristics of a pharisaical spirit as it's depicted here in Matthew 12. There are other signs of a Pharisee's heart where those came from, to be sure. I'm sure we'll, sure we'll address them as we go through the book of Matthew, but I think we see at least those three in our passage today. Now, all of that said, hopefully that is helpful for you in discerning your own heart and your own posture in certain scenarios. But all that said, I don't wanna end there. All we've done so far is help identify and single out a Pharisee's heart where we see it in ourselves or in others. I want to end by giving us all a picture of a better type of posture towards other people. Because opposite of all of these postures from the Pharisees is actually the posture of Jesus himself. And that's where Matthew goes for the rest of our passage. So take a look with me, picking it back up in verse 15 of chapter 12. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. So Jesus is aware of the Pharisees' plot to kill him, so he moves along to another place. Jesus told his disciples in previous chapters, we covered this, that they shouldn't be against moving on if they face persecution. Here, Jesus takes his own advice. He moves along to the next place. But even as he does that, even as he moves to another place, he can't seem to get away from the crowds. They follow him. Tons of people follow him. He continues to heal and help those people that follow him. But he warns them as he does all of this not to tell others about it. Jesus knows how things will end for him. He knows where his life is going to end up. But he's not trying to accelerate that process. He tells his people to keep quiet. He's not after notoriety for just notoriety's sake. Now notice that posture right there is the polar opposite of the Pharisees. Jesus will later in Matthew criticize the Pharisees because they love notoriety for notoriety's sake alone. They want people to recognize them. They want people to respect them. They want people to look up to them. Jesus is not the same way about his posture towards other people. The Pharisees think of themselves so highly that they have begun to equate their reading of Scripture with Scripture itself. Jesus does precisely the opposite. Though he is arguably the most worthy person of notoriety in the entire history of the world, he intentionally discourages amplifying that notoriety at this point in his story. And then Matthew gives us a summary statement. He actually shows us an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah that he feels like applies directly to this moment in the story. And in this, we're gonna see even more contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. Look with me at verses 17 through 21. This, meaning this posture or this approach to ministry, was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And here's the quote from Isaiah chapter 42, if you want to look it up later on your own time. Verse 18, here is my servant whom I have chosen, 
the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. So this figure prophesied about in Isaiah, the servant of the Lord, would not be one to quarrel or cry out. In other words, he won't go out looking for a fight or a conflict. He won't go nitpick and find fault with other people and stir up strife with other people. He's not looking for an opportunity to accuse people of things. Now contrast that with the Pharisees who go out looking for things to accuse other people of and to tear other people down. Then there's this language about bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. It it reads a little bit weird to us. Like we're not exactly sure what Jesus is saying. These were word pictures to Isaiah to talk about essentially needy people. Poor people, people with disabilities, people with lifelong illnesses, people in need of healing and deliverance and rescue and friendship. These were word pictures that Isaiah used for people like that. Matthew is saying that Jesus will not place additional burdens on needy people like the Pharisees did. He's looking for ways to help them, to heal them, to include them, to befriend them and make them a part of his kingdom. And this passage says he will not stop doing that until he has made everything in the world just as it should be, until he has brought justice through to victory. Now, There's one last thing to know about Matthew using this Isaiah passage, and that's that up until this point, when people had read Isaiah chapter 42, nobody really thought that that passage referred to an individual person. Nobody thought that that it was about one specific person. They thought it was about Israel as a whole. The nation of Israel was the servant of the Lord, in other words. But here, Matthew quotes this passage and actually insists that it refers to a singular person, the person of Jesus. Now, here's why that's significant. It means that Jesus had come to be what the nation of Israel had failed to be. He came to be what what even we, as God's people, could not figure out how to be. You see, the truth is that all of us have a little bit of Pharisee tendencies in us. All of us, in our own ways, conflate our interpretation of the Scriptures with the Scriptures themselves. All of us, at one point or another, find joy in finding fault with other people. All of us tend to escalate our concerns and conflicts to a higher level of importance than they warrant. But the good news of the kingdom is not hey, this is the posture of a Pharisee, try to stop acting like this. That's not good news. The good news of the kingdom is that Jesus, the Messiah, has come to be what all of us have failed to be. The good news of the kingdom is that he has come for those who realize they cannot cut it on their own. That's the promise that Jesus brings with his kingdom. And if we can acknowledge that about ourselves... If we can acknowledge that we have failed to be who God has called us to be, and if we can acknowledge that about him, that he has come to be what we have failed to be, he grants to us access to this way of life. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he came for those who have failed to be the servants of the Lord, 
so that he could be that servant on our behalf and that through him we might become what we were meant to be all along. So if you want to become less like a Pharisee, the best thing for you to do is to get to know Jesus. Learn how he related to people. Learn how he understood the Old Testament law. Learn how he understood commands like the Sabbath. And through that process, allow him to transform our hearts to be like his. You see, at the core of the Pharisees' problem was what we might call comparative righteousness. Their sense of value and worth in who they were came primarily from comparing themselves to everybody else. And man, isn't that something that we've all done at some point? Look at other people and say, I'm so much better than that. I do that so much better than they do. I'm some, such a better person than they are. That the core of the Pharisees' problem was that. They got their righteousness by comparing them to people with less than them, who could do less than them. And Jesus comes along and says, don't find your righteousness in comparing yourself to other people. Find your righteousness as a gift from me through the cross and resurrection. Come to me and find that I have given you all the righteousness that you need, that, that I make it to where the Father looks at you and says, you're my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And work from that posture, work from that assurance. As this passage says, Jesus is the one that the nations would put their hope in. What it means to put our hope in Jesus is to find our righteousness in him to obtain our righteousness from him and not by comparing it to other people. So let me pray for us to that end. Um, Father, thank you for who you are. Um, God, thank you for your goodness, your grace. God, thank you that you've given us a righteousness far better than anything we could obtain for ourselves or work out for ourselves. God, that you don't, um, that you don't burden us, you don't place more on us than what is needed. I thank you that you choose to show mercy, that you value mercy over sacrifice. God, and I just get the feeling that, um, that a lot of us in this room, myself included, somewhere along the line, we, we, we bought the lie that, um, that you want to burden us with your commands, and that's just not who you are. God, somewhere along the line, we, we made following you about um, giving up things and sacrificing things and um, begrudging submission to you. And, and it's not that you don't call us to sacrifice. You, you surely do. But God, that sacrifice has always been about us realizing that we gain way more than we ever have to give up. And so God, I, I just remember what we read at the end of the last chapter of Matthew, into chapter 11, 
where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so God, my prayer is that this morning, maybe for the first time, maybe the first time in a long time, um, that many of us would experience true rest. God, that we would remember that's what you came to offer us. That's what your goodness can accomplish in our hearts and in our lives. And so God, if if there's any of us that's um, resisting that for whatever reason, maybe we're just used to religion, we're used to Phariseeism, we're used to um, that begrudging submission to you. God, our prayer is that you would create, that you would generate something new today, that you would breathe life into our lungs. God, and that we would find in you someone worth following, someone worth loving, someone worth worshiping. Not a system of beliefs. Not a system of rules or commands but grace and mercy for each of us. Grace and mercy. That's how you relate to your people. That's what you want. That's what you desire to show us. And God, every single one of your commands from there are seen as life and joy and peace and you trying to restore us to who we were meant to be all along. So God, would you do that in our midst this morning? Would you help us to listen? Would you help us to respond? Would you help us not to drown it out, not to be used to what we're used to and and forget what happened here this morning? God, would you help us to hear and respond? Would you help us to give give you over our hearts? Yield to you, listen to you, respond to you. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy. It's in your name we pray, amen.